0: Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary.
1: And then I saw the, the if you will, blue-chip avant-garde, like Laurie Anderson and, and Philip Glass. They'd get their occasional work, but they didn't have a place to actually work it out and play. And there was stuff all over, and all artists really wanted was a good room where people would listen and where we were fair about the, the ticketing and the box office.
2: This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. For 15 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, a conversation with music impresario and restaurateur, Michael Dorf. Our focus is on
1: the sensory elements. I feel our job now is to have people keep
2: their phone in their pocket. Here's Debbie, first with a word from our sponsor.
0: There's nothing better at the end of a long day on the road than relaxing over a delicious nightcap. That's what I love most about staying at AC Hotels by Marriott. The AC Lounge serves the most divine, bespoke cocktails, featuring two signature gin tonic recipes, along with local craft beers and wines. There's also a curated food menu inspired by the tapas of Spain. AC Hotels lets you live life by design, not by default. AC Hotels, member of Marriott Bonvoy, the perfectly precise hotel. Visit AC Hotels at ac-hotels.com to learn more. I try to walk between 5 and 10,000 steps a day. Sometimes I'm successful, sometimes I'm not, but it always seems like I'm running around. And there's nothing I'd rather wear when I'm walking than my impossibly soft Allbirds. Wearing them is like floating on air. They're cozy like little magic sheep hugging my feet, and they're beautiful. All birds are designed with just the right amount of everything and nothing. They have clean lines and subtle detailing, and are made from premium all natural materials like ZQ certified merino wool and FSC certified eucalyptus fibers. For a person on the run nearly all the time, wearing them is self-care personified. I can't recommend them enough. Allbirds are the perfect shoes for any style. Get your own pair at allbirds.com. Almost every new technology has its upside and its downside. With the internet, for example, we can listen to almost any performer ever recorded anywhere – But we usually listen alone, and we lose the extraordinary communal experience of live performance. This is something Michael Dorff addresses in his new book, Indulge Your Senses, Scaling Intimacy in a Digital World. In 1986, Michael Dorff founded The Knitting Factory, the late great alternative performance venue in Lower Manhattan. More recently, he started City Winery, now a chain of concert venues, restaurants, and functioning wineries. He's a promoter, an entrepreneur, and an author. Michael Dorf, welcome to Design Matters. Hey, thanks for having me. Michael, I understand your brand new book was influenced by a conversation backstage at Carnegie Hall. With Patty Smith, how, what did you talk about? How did how did she influence this book? Well,
1: she she's a very prolific artist and writer. I had just finished reading the memoir about her with Robert Maplethorpe. Just kids, just yeah. kids, and I've known her for a while, but I'm still starstruck with a lot of artists, even after becoming friends with them. You know, years and years of dinners and drinks with Lou Reed. I still it took me five years to finally ask him about the you know Velvet Underground and Andy Warhol and all of that. So I'm backstage at one of the Carnegie tributes, and I just finished reading Just Kids, and I brought the book with me, and I was like, I think I'll ask her to autograph it. And as I'm sitting and talking to her, you know, a little bit about the show coming up and in and, and, and life, I said to her, I just don't understand. How did you remember such micro detail and just such incredible textured stories, you know, that you, you describe so beautifully. And she goes, I kept a diary. I always keep a diary. I've been writing, you know, a little entry every day, so I don't forget. And I just remember this, not an epiphany, it was more of just this big ball hitting me in the head going, I'm a schmuck, because, you know, I'm I'm forgetting all these things. And while I have a phone now that takes a lot of photos, that conjures some memory, It's still not the same as trying to keep those details in writing. And and so I thought, you know, I I need to start writing more. I need to start going back a little bit. And so that was on my mind when I got approached to do a book. And and so it kind of came together nicely.
0: You're careful to point out that the book is not a memoir. You've declared that you're way too young for that. How would you describe it instead?
1: You know, it's it's a music business book. I think that's probably the best you know, description, it's got stories around, you know, being in the music business. I, I, I know I perform well as a speaker best in sort of the business school lectures context where people, you know, have, they love, everyone loves music, but if they wanted to be doing something within the music world, I'm able to help express and think through what they're doing and, and, and be, if you will, somewhat inspirational for what they might want to be pursuing.
0: In your book, you detail that you were born and raised in Wisconsin and how you've always loved music. What are your earliest memories of what you were listening to?
1: Well, I went to a socialist Jewish camp in northern Wisconsin. So, you know, there was a lot of Bob Dylan and Woody Guthrie. Pete Seeger. Pete Seeger, social activist, you know, type of music. If I had a hammer kind of thing.
0: You hail from a family of entrepreneurs, starting with your grandfather, Saul, who started the Milwaukee Biscuit Company in the 1940s. (laughs) What was he teaching you back then? Well, my grandpa, Saul, one thing he
1: for sure taught me was at five o'clock, it's happy hour. Um, (laughs) He was a very hardworking, you know, depression era entrepreneur. But he he always found five o'clock or probably was more like 630, a time with my grandma to stop and stop work and have a drink and family was important. And while I think they brought work home and they, you know, again, they worked seven days a week, there was always stop, smell the roses for a bit. But they loved what they did. My grandpa lived to be 93 when my dad eventually sold the business. But for about five years, there was an earnout. They had an office for him where he worked until he was 89, 90 Where he would just call customers, you know, and, you know, they didn't, he just, he liked to go into work. And I can't imagine retirement myself. I I would like to golf and hike and explore the world. But, you know, I want to do a little bit of work of some sort every day.
0: You have written about how grateful you were that your father sold the business as opposed to passing it down to you and the rest of the family. Why?
1: Well, third generation is is especially hard in a family business where there are six potential people to be then the leader of the company because then you're going to have five who are not. So that's challenging. Um, I, I, again, in retrospect, feel blessed because, you know, selling cookies and crackers in the Midwest, while it could have been a very comfortable thing, and I probably would have gone into alcohol distribution – you know, still is not the same of being able to go, all right, I'm, I really get to follow my passion. I'm going to, you know, when you're in Milwaukee and you want to be in, involved in culture, few people go to Chicago, but most either go to West Coast or East Coast. And I always felt like a New York person. So New York was my magnet.
0: Growing up, you shoveled snow. You collected beer cans and sold them. You built rec rooms for neighbors when you were a teenager. Where was this drive coming from?
1: You know, I, I like to sell stuff. I mean, I—it's easy for me. It's in my DNA. I—I I really wanted to be an architect. You know, so a builder, but using design and and thinking through a design, and I spatially, I like that part of of what I do today. I built these rec rooms, and I was really happy about going in, and designing a space, and you know, and. With, in the midwest you know you'd have a basement and you'd put ugly paneling on the walls and a drop ceiling and then you put a wet bar somewhere you know and then there was a ping pong table and that's that's that and for $3000 i was the cheapest rec room builder in town in suburban milwaukee i took a whole portfolio of photos and applied to washington university to the architecture department with this book that had six different rec room designs and the photos and i was all excited cuz that's what i wanted to do i wanted to you know design and went in and they looked at the portfolio and said to me so people paid you money to to, to build these things and i was like yeah and they're like you know we would strongly recommend you apply to the business school it's right over there <laughs> we'll get you in in an hour for an interview and highly recommend and now I'm pretty much designing all our spaces and, and feel, you know, very much like a designer.
0: One of my favorite anecdotes in your book was your story about how breaking cookies was both a light bulb moment and your greatest triumph <laughs> as you were growing up, which in many ways is similar, I think, to your building rec rooms. Can you, can you share that story with us?
1: Well, the broken cookie was, you know, I, at, I sold my beer can collection at this flea market called Seven Mile Fair. It was a, you know, they just, you could buy Bic pens for a dollar a dozen. You could buy gas containers filled with gas, you know, unlike most, there was no legality. It was a whole economy of stuff. People would go there and get their provisions, food, you know, wall material to build a home. Like, it was just this great flea market. We did well with the beer cans. We, you know, a collection that took a year of looking around railroad yards and stuff. But we sold it for three hundred and fifty dollars. My friend Todd and I, and my dad had got all of these returned products that truly cases of stuff that would break or fall off the truck, and he accumulated them. But I saw an opportunity to sell these three for a dollar. Nice. Nicely packaged cookies, and said, "I'd like to go sell these at the flea market." So I was fourteen or fifteen. I didn't couldn't drive, so he had to drop me off. My friend Todd, who we did the beer can, now transitioned to be my cookie partner in this thing, and we had about thirty cases of of packaged goods. By noon, we really hadn't sold any cookies at three for a dollar, three packages for a dollar. So I took a dime and had to call my dad. You know, go to a telephone booth and make a call and say hey uh, can you come pick us up around 2 or 3 we didn't do very well i'm really sorry but by the way todd and i sat on a box and we kind of broke them uh, i'm sorry and he goes listen just you know sell those for whatever you can i don't want to bring those back and put them into inventory so i went back and started selling those packages for 5 for a dollar and we so and it was a simple line of they're fresh we just broke them 5 for a buck 5 for a dollar And they sold like hotcakes. So we proceeded to break all the cookies (laughs) that we had, another 29 cases. And when my dad came two hours later to pick us up, we had no product. And he's like, what happened? I said, well, unfortunately, I'm really sorry. We broke them all, and then I sold them. And um, that led to the light bulb of, all right, let's come back to next week with all the piles of broken product that's in the warehouse – And we'll sell that. And that led to a really robust business.
0: I think there's a really interesting case study here for behavioral economics. (laughs) (laughs) You turn that into a a family enterprise. Um, You bought all kinds of damaged products from your dad's company to the fair, as you mentioned. This included dented cans, frozen olive oil, more broken cookies— and from what I understand, you made thousands of dollars per weekend. You eventually hired your brother, your cousins, and your friends to keep up with demand. Is yeah, this... there was a
1: period of time when, in the early days of the knitting factory, where, you know, over an entire month or two, we would not make as much as I was making in a single weekend. And I thought, what am I doing? You know, I do need to go back to Milwaukee and just start working the fair. But I'm glad I didn't.
0: Me too. You described yourself back then as a short, pimply kid who yearned to be cool and attract girls, and you took guitar lessons and tried over and over and over to play Stairway to Heaven. Um, Were you ever able to master the tune? Nope. You wanted to be in a band, but given your lack of musical aptitude, you were the sound and lighting guy for Friends bands. How did you first meet Bob Appel?
1: Well, Bob Appel and Harlan Steinberger were two friends from the camp that we went to. And they were natural musicians. You know, Bob could sit on the piano after hearing an Elton John song on the radio and truly duplicate it and sing in the most beautiful, angelic voice. Harlan then could play piano, but he also had rhythm and could do the drums, and he could use all four, two hands and two feet at the same time I'm trying to do two and I can't, you know, do it. And, and then they started playing together and then they had a band and they would play live and girls thought they were, you know, awesome. And I was kind of bummed because, you know, you
0: couldn't play Stairway to Heaven.
1: <laughs> I sucked, you know, on the guitar. And so I quickly became the sound man and then, the, you know, the promoter. And then eventually when the band got more real in college, I got more real and created the record label around them. And, And tried to be in the record business and then decided, all right, I'm moving this Wisconsin label with now five bands from Wisconsin to New York. And that's what started the label, which quickly transitioned into the Knitting Factory.
0: The record label that you're talking about, that's Flaming Pie Records? Yes. You started this label, and despite its small size and real DIY attitude, you did work with some incredible names. Can you talk about some of the people you collaborated with?
1: Well, the... None of the bands ever broke through or sold more than a thousand records. So, you know, uh, the band that I was managing called Swamp Thing, that Bob Appel, you know, became a big part of. The, the The one big name was Butch Vig, who went on to be the Nirvana. producer of Nirvana. He was the producer of the Swamp Thing record. And so there's an overlap there. But this was pre-Nirvana, so it was one of those we got lucky with a great producer. He was in a band called Spooner. There was a very good scene in Madison in terms of artists. And um, one of the records I made was called The Mad Scene while I was there for the seven months pretending to be in law school. You know, that, that tried to capture a bit of what was happening in Madison then.
0: What motivated you to go to law school in the first place? Well, I wasn't
1: sure what I wanted to do. I was in Europe essentially for the year after college pretending to learn Spanish in a language program. Ended up cooking for four Swedish girls in an apartment instead of being with a family on a language program. And so I didn't ever learn any real Spanish there. But I got to travel throughout Europe for for almost a year. I wasn't sure what I was going to do. I thought maybe I wanted to be a a painter or a sculptor or a writer or, you know, I, I lost my opportunity to be an architect, right, after the region. So I, I, that's where I thought I was going and I got the call from the band Swamp Thing to come back to Madison to manage them. And I thought, how am I going to afford to live in Madison um, as a music guy? You know, I have no money. At least I didn't think I wanted to, you know, put my bar mitzvah savings into the band. And so I, I was like, you know, You know, law is interesting. My parents always wanted me to be a lawyer, right? I mean, all Jewish parents want their kids to be a lawyer or a doctor. And intellectual property rights did interest me intellectually. You know, the idea of ownership of art and how long the property right lasts and the creation of of a song, you know, how it travels through the system. And so there was a little bit of curiosity there and thought that could be a good bench to, to... to grow from if I want to be in the music business as, as my world of the arts. So that's, that was the rationale to go back. And I did spend a year and I did well. And, and uh, you know, I was thinking I might transfer to NYU or Columbia if I, and so I I actually tried and, but I said, I'm going to New York anyways. And if I get in, maybe I'll continue to, you know, moonlight law school while trying to be a full-time, you know, music mogul. And luckily, I didn't get in, and I was able to, you know, really give it everything into the into the business.
0: You ended up taking your bar mitzvah savings as well as some borrowed money from your grandparents and went looking for real estate that could house a gallery in front and an office in the back. But you didn't know how a gallery could survive, so you pondered selling coffee and muffins in it, and you were going to call it espressoism, which I love. Great name, but then you started thinking, my area is music. Why should I just sell coffee? And then you came upon your idea for the Knitting Factory. Tell us about how that all came to be.
1: Well, you actually just nailed it. I mean, I, you know, I—I <laughs> I just told you, was, right? <laughs> was struggling with the record side of the business. I was living on Tenth Street, and the band was in the back, and my friend Louis was was there, and I was trying to run this label out of this apartment, and. Struggling terribly. You put a lot of money into it. At the time, relative to, you know, what everything I had, it was a lot. It was everything I had. and And so that was not sustainable. It was really, I was very close to going back to Wisconsin. And I found this old office on Houston Street an old Avon office and they had some people shooting up in the back. I mean, it was truly that neighborhood between Mott and Mulberry on Houston street was really no, it was not Lolita, you know, way to, it was no man's land. Um, I got very lucky with a landlord who was willing to let me create this coffee shop. Idea it was not fully baked in terms of an idea. And I went in with the as the first name. I quickly changed that to the fire escape. Uh, that which became the legal corporation for The Knitting Factory. But right before opening, friends of mine were like, you know, Firescape's a bad name for a club in New York. You know, there's been fires, people have died, come up with a different name. And then, so, the band that I was managing, Swamp Thing, the second record was going to be called Mr. Bloodstein's Knitting Factory. They ended up calling it A Cow Comes True. And so I borrowed the name Knitting Factory um, really right away, uh, a few days before opening our doors. And opening our doors was not a grand opening with, you know, big spotlight in New York City or anything like that. It was truly opening the door and my standing on the street begging anyone to come in. We didn't have a liquor license, beer, wine license. I was only able to have espresso and salad muffins. Um, my dad sent me some care packages from Milwaukee. He was able to get bulk corn nuts um, at a very, very good price for me. And so I, I had cornets on the tables, which then led to the New Yorker who stumbled in early on, going, you know, this guy from Wisconsin, and most of my friends were still were doing bartending and helping, so it was a staff from Wisconsin. And then I had this band, Phil Gnarly and the Tough Guys, who was sneaking in line, lining kugels in their van because I could get it cheaper than Rolling Rock, and everyone liked holding those long neck beers. So I had beer from Wisconsin, and then, of course, some music from Wisconsin. So, And now my dad sent me corn nuts, so we kind of had corn product from Wisconsin. So we became, in the New Yorker, this Wisconsin-esque type of business. But whatever, we'll take any press we could get, and it just, it just took off very organically. Within a, two months, we ended up getting a wine and beer license. Within a year, we took over the restaurant below, so we were able to get a full li- liquor license. Um sometime in, in that first year and a half I took over the second floor of Housen Street because the family literally left one evening um because we were making so much noise. I believe it was a sonic youth concert that drove them out and then the landlord basically said, Dorf, you're taking this space. So that that's how we grew.
0: So the name the knitting factory had nothing to do with the hundreds of sweaters that were stitched together covering the ceiling of the club.
1: No. That was just again one of those artistically inspired which is a a very generous way to call a drunken session of thinking of design. But um no, it was we went to Goodwill, we bought sweaters, we cut them in half so we got double surface area. We then knit them together. My friend Dan Bodner, who's an artist, um, now a great painter lives in Amsterdam. He was the the main uh, knitter of those of that ceiling, and of course it was not the most fire um, retardant uh, material. So we ended up having to take when the fire department came. They came through and they were like, "This is bad. This is really bad. We don't know about your occupancy. You don't have enough fire extinguishers. Blah blah, blah. but your ceiling is really dangerous. You got to get some fire proofing done." So we got this stuff that we would spray, spray? <laughs> I, I know, but it was more pump, this, this whole you know, flow of, of wetness, and it would drip for about a day. So the ceiling became this sweaters, but they were really kind of gooey, almost like this material on your studio wall. and more plasticky. But you could hold a, a lighter to it, and it wouldn't ignite. You know, if you looked above the sweaters, on nights that we had someone like the Violent Femmes up there with 300 people in a 99 legal space, you'd see the ceiling having gone down two or three feet.
0: Is it New true York that City. when your mother first came to visit the knitting factory, she cried? She did. <laughs> Why is that? Well,
1: our rent was $1,800 a month, which now I think most of us would cry if we could get anything in New York for $1,800. But at the time... Parking spot. Yeah, exactly. In Milwaukee... $1,800 could have rented you a giant warehouse um, in 1987. So when I told her I'm taking all my savings and bar mitzvah money and everything is going into this place and I've gotten out of my apartment, I'm living in the back office, I here's my futon under the desk and this is what I'm doing for the rest of my life. She And, you know, I had long hair, I, was, I had barrettes and funky clothes. She thought... I had lost it. So she was crying both maybe at the stench of the space and all that in the beginning, but also like, what? what is, what is my... My son's not in law school. He's... Wearing know, barrettes. He's wearing barrettes. He's kind of gone off the deep end, and this is, he's proud of this, this dump on Houston Street.
0: Well, the club would eventually eke out an identity for hosting noise, jazz bands, and independent rock alongside poetry readings, performance art, independent film plays and more. I can't even begin to tell you how many times I visited. I'm a native New Yorker and spent the entire decade of the 80s frequenting as many music venues as I possibly could. Uh, You hosted a syndicated radio show. Uh, The Wall Street Journal wrote this in 1990. The Knitting Factory is acclaimed for having single-handedly invigorated, if not created, an eclectic post-punk jazz rock music scene here. And the New York Times wrote, The Knitting Factory almost single-handedly revived New York's downtown art scene in its first six months of operation. But Michael, at the time, you said that you were just a conduit for something that was already there. What do you mean? Well, I
1: didn't come with this mission and purpose that I'm going to create this facility that's going to become and manifest it to what it became. I saw a great jazz scene happening that was not getting exposure in the more traditional jazz clubs or up at the beginning of Lincoln Center or my friend George Wein's jazz festival. I saw in the rock world because I was trying to get my acts booked and CBGBs in these other rooms, this sort of narrowing these bins that stuff had to be placed. It, what, what kind of rock is it? Is it vintage rock or new wave? And if it was anything in between, it was kind of a hard placement. And then I saw the, the if you will, blue chip avant-garde, like Laurie Anderson and, and Philip Glass. They'd get their occasional work, but they didn't have a place to actually work it out and play. And there was stuff all over, and all artists really wanted was a good room where people would listen, and where there, we were fair about the, the ticketing and the box office. So we created a formula 7525. Artists get 75 percent of the gate. So if 100 people pay 10 bucks, that's 1,000 dollars or 750 bucks for them, and 250 for us. Simple, easy. And we were honest. If one person paid, that's what it was. If it was sold out, you know, every dollar was very accountable. And so I think the word spread very quickly that it was a a fair deal with someone who cared about the music. And everything started to come our way. You know, and uh, Cecil Taylor wanted to do his performances with us. And Henry Threadgill, and Ornette Coleman, like the greatest names in jazz. And then the african-american scene of young players in brooklyn cassandra wilson and steve coleman and greg osby were like this is a cool place to play. And then the white avant-garde scene in the Lower East Side, you know, luckily kind of led by John Zorn, like he fell in love with the place and, and we formed a great relationship. And then John Lurie and the Lounge Lizards and Sonic Youth and the Indigo Girls and They Might Be Giants. It yeah, all I saw the
0: name, They Might Be Giants and the Lounge Lizards at the I mean, knitting it factory. It all came in. Yeah.
1: And so um, on you know, that sense, I felt very lucky and and realized my... My role was to be this conduit and think about all the elements, and I think that obviously has manifested and blossomed with City Winery. It's all about being an extra special conduit.
0: Despite the groundbreaking shows working with real pioneers in the music business and massive amounts of good press. You still struggled financially. Con Ed even turned off your electricity from time to time. The mm-hmm. venue was robbed in your first year of operation. You lost $10,000 worth of sound gear that was all uninsured. That just broke my heart. How did you persevere through these experiences without feeling like you needed to give up?
1: Uh, that's a very good question. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, Look, just recently, Trinity Church, you know, screwed us on our city winery space. It got a lot of attention. You can easily just decide, I'm giving up, I'm done. Or you go, all right, I'm going to, you know, uh, can you swear on this podcast? Oh, absolutely. You go, fuck it. (laughs) I'm going to figure out a way around it. And I think, you know, certainly I, I, I express it a lot in the book, but I do think this happens all the time. In either little ways or really big ways, and and it helps get you creative about taking not advantage where you want these things to happen, but what do you do to just get around them and learn from them. And and if there's ever a lesson to, to give to young business people is to just learn from the mistakes and learn from these challenges and see what you can do to get around it.
0: In the mid-90s, you got a hold of a piece of tech that would enable you to stream music on the internet. And you've written about this experience and said, In truth, I had no idea what I was messing with. All I knew was that my experiments with technology so far had given me a nice buzz. Business was growing at a healthy pace and life was good. Little did I know that as endless possibilities unfolded before me. I was about to cross a line... That would lead me to ruin. Hmm. Michael, what happened?
1: So that was the Dap Machine, and we luckily came into New York right at the dawn of the digital era. And I was trying to look at the, the Knitting Factory. One is a great place for music, but I, at that point, really wanted to be in the recorded music business. So for me, it was all about recording, and what could I do to take that performance and get it out to the world in other formats. So obviously it was vinyl for a little bit but then quickly became CD that transitioned into the internet and getting it out in other formats there. The DAT machine was that first breakthrough, you know, technology and we couldn't afford it. So I bought a hot one on the Bowery, brought it back and that's why we got broken into shortly thereafter because of the bad karma of buying a hot DAP machine, and I've never bought anything hot, and I certainly believe in karma, but that was the beginning of the obsession to, you know, use technology to get the the precious material that was being created in our space out to the rest of the world. And actually, I, I overdosed on that on that drug of wanting to use technology to get the word out, and Obviously, City Winery. Now we do very little, if nothing, around the intellectual property rights and the, and the music getting out from our own brand. Right? People are certainly doing things around it, but I'm not involved with it, and I'm happy to let other people do it. Focusing my attention on the experience itself. Um, but the debt machine was sort of the beginning of this incredible time of of. Very unique recording and, and thinking about digits versus atoms.
0: You eventually left the Knitting Factory and Knit Media and referred to some of the conflict you had with what you referred to as vulture capitalists instead of venture capitalists. What happened?
1: First of all, the ve- the vulture versus venture is not my own spin. I kept hearing it from others around that time and and unfortunately didn't really understand what people were saying. I, I wish I'd listened to some advisors and others around the deal type, but I owned the company from the knitting factory from inception and in '96 the dot com thing started to boom and I had formed Knit Media at that time to start to really look at again all the platforms so we could get the word out. It was at that point I probably started calling music content and mm-hmm. and forgetting that it really is music made by musicians, humans who are creative people, and it was just about output content, content. And I had some friends, an intern of ours who started a dot com out west, who worked for us in New York for a year, became a billionaire overnight, you know, with one of his you know ideas. And I had many friends who were starting to do things and make a lot of money and i was like all right well maybe i should start looking at what we're doing in in that kind of way and and focus more on the content generation and less about the live concert experience so i leveraged the live to capture a lot of content and then get it out there so i raised money the first round of investors were actually very nice kind of old music industry guys who told me, go out and get some accounting software because you need to get professional about your business. But then very quickly after that, we got a bunch of the venture money that was floating around. That whole irrational exuberance that was the, the name of the game then was was full force so I was getting a lot of money, and I diluted myself down to a place where I might have owned 50% of the common shares, but that didn't mean anything because there were all these layers of preferred Internet dollars that had come in to make it almost impossible for me to control my destiny. And uh, between that and then 9-11 happening and the you dot-com know, bust and the record industry kind of completely imploding at that point— I decided I needed to do something more meaningful in, in my life. That that just running a, a beer and mortar, you know, thing was not, you know, where I was. I didn't want to fight with the, with a bunch of investors, and I needed to really respect the music again. I tried to convince my family to actually move to Oregon, and you know, I wanted to be you know Candide in the Voltaire story, and and, and truly, uh, you know, farm and and have a garden and get back to the most basic elemental components of life. And found a beautiful vineyard uh, in the Dundee Hills of, of the Willamette Valley. And I just could not convince my kids and wife to move to Oregon. And it kind of forced the idea of if I'm going to get into wine business and have a true winery and have it in New York and have an urban winery, I'm going to have to figure out a model that's going to work. But I... I it, I I was very close to become a farm becoming a farmer in in Oregon.
0: I think that your love of wine started way before then. Didn't you have an uncle that called you Mister Beaujolais?
1: Yeah, I mean it really started you know at my bris, where at eight days they stuck a you know cloth in my mouth with some bad manischewitz, but I was drinking it. Um, <laughs> so I've been doing it for a long time. I've always, for whatever reason, liked wine. And freshman year of college, I came back. My family wasn't a wine. It, my grandparents, my uncles, nobody drank wine at the table. Uh, but at Thanksgiving, I came back with a Nouveau Beaujolais, $5 bottle of wine, and I started getting kidded about my being, Mr. Beaujolais, oh, fancy wine dude from college, you know. And uh, But I always loved it. And, and look at you now. Yeah.
0: Um, you stated that after the dot-com bust, taking refuge in the rich, sensory world of winemaking and listening to live jazz helped you discover a new purpose in life. And you go on to state that you were inspired by entrepreneurs who ignore the outside chatter and focus instead on the inner voice that leads them to some unmet need. How did you come to trust that inner chatter, that inner voice telling you what to do next?
1: You know, I looked around and and was like, all right, so I want to I wanna do something in wine. Actually, I'd like to, if possible, have a winery in New York City. If I'm going to go see a show and drink wine, I want to do it seated because I don't want to stand anymore the whole time. If I'm going to drink wine seated, I want a good wine list. And then if I'm going to pour wine into a glass, it better be a real glass, Redel, not some plastic, you know, cup. And if I'm gonna drink a bunch of wine, there better be some good food. So it can't just be, you know, the, you know, fried stuff that the bottom line had or, you know, mm, or the non line. you know, great place, bad food, love mm-hmm. Allen Pepper. I designed something really for for what I wanted. Felt like if and if it worked for me and then it works for my friends, it could work for a whole bunch of people that also love singer-songwriters, great music. And and a great culinary experience, and and then you know we opened and it took off. I mean, it was very clear that it was exactly what the time in 08 needed. This whole, you know, now being an antidote for the over digitization of our society, I don't think I created it thinking that this is going to you know be a, a meditation window for people. But what we've built is a is a opportunity for people to put down their phone for two hours and completely immerse themselves in a, in a really communal experience that's important for, for our DNA.
0: You opened City Winery on New Year's Eve in 2008 as the world was going all in on digital and the financial markets were collapsing. Did anybody think you were crazy for launching something so deeply rooted in the physical at that time? Well, certainly the
1: vineyards in California that I was buying, the grapes, or as we call it, you know, the fruit in the business, we bought about 80 tons of the best world-class Cabernets and Pinot Noirs and Chardonnays, and nobody would give me terms. You know, they're like, what, you want me to package these up and ship them to New York City? You're going to have music in the winery? Cool, but you're going to pay up front. So we, we had to do that for that fall. And actually, our first grapes arrived the same week Lehman Brothers declared bankruptcy. So it was financial Armageddon when all this expensive fruit from California showed up. You know, spending $12,000 for a barrel of wine, if you're a banker that you could have your name on, was no big deal. In fact, it was a really cool thing. That whole thing went away in October of '08.
0: Would you say that City Winery is a music business centered around wine or a wine business centered around music?
1: Well, as as you know, I wake up every morning asking myself that exact question. And we're both. There's no question. We're a unique winery that uses music and culinary as a way to sell its wine, for sure. We haven't yet grown into being a brand that's in retail or on you know, at at your local Walmart to buy. So we are selling it at a higher margin because we're selling it direct to our customer. And most of that by the glass out of taps because we're doing it, you know, in in an incredibly environmental way and, and a higher margin. So there's no faster way into our customers' bloodstreams at the highest margin possible than doing it, you know, from the barrel directly into a glass, and then into someone's you know um, system. So, in that sense, we're a very unique winery. At the same time, you know, we're competing heavily as a now a, a multi-unit, scalable music company. We sold seven hundred thousand tickets this year to shows around the country, and we're going to keep growing and giving artists like. You know Joan Armitrading, a 30-night run where she walks away with a $700,000 check and goes home to the U.K. and is good for the year. So we are a really interesting live music company that uses winemaking and the authenticity and the, all the sensory components that come with that to provide a better concert experience. Um, it's a unique platform to, to, to move and sell and influence in a lot of other ways.
0: You very consciously do not stream or record the performances at City Winery. Do you intend to keep things that way? And also tell me why you think that that's something that is important.
1: You know, we're torn on this. We would love to, on one hand, stream, not for maybe the reason you, you know, or most people would think would be an opportunity to get viewers online. We would maybe gravitate towards recording the shows just so that we could tell every person in the audience you don't need to have your phone up bothering your neighbor and the artist the whole time because with one click you can get the show with multi-camera and so put your phone away that would be the only reason i'd want to do it again our focus is on the sensory elements we want i feel our job now is to have people keep their phone in their pocket you know yeah maybe take a quick shot or two of instagram you and your friends but our job is to immerse the customer into the experience focus on this magic that's happening and create this incredible lifelong memory that you would leave with and if we're doing that we want to take out all of these things that we're dealing with all day outside of that at your desk with your computer at home with your phone. Um, television, what have you. We want to eliminate that and just focus on the non-digital. We are not Luddites. I mean, we're using a lot of technology to bring people in. We sell out most of our shows. We have a great CRM system where we understand what our customers desires and needs. Fabulous are.
0: way of selling tickets and, have, and picking your seats. We have
1: a we've invested so much technology in our ticketing system. For me the idea of of understanding the the entire arc, the customer journey from the moment they learn about the show and click to buy is really valuable, you know, to us.
0: You've stated that your biggest sin over the years was not ambition, but letting technology interfere with the simple human exchange between artist and audience. And I'm wondering where you see the relationship we have to our phones evolving in live shows, where there are more and more performers now asking for people not to use their phones during performances and to leave them outside. What what are your feelings about that?
1: We're not going to be draconian and take... The phone away. Uh, I think that's wrong. I think that's a mistake. At the same time, our job is to keep people's phones in their pocket. And the way to do that is by making as compelling a product as possible, not forcing it. Maybe some reminders. You know, our candelabras say no talking during the show. Please respect your artist and the neighbor. No talking. You know, there are ways that we can make announcements and the artist can certainly emphasize it if, if it's getting out of hand. I've seen Phones taken away by the artist, and thank God for that. But our job is to make as great an experience as possible where people just don't feel compelled to, to videotape the whole time.
0: Michael, I have two last questions for you. According to The New Yorker, you have become one of the most prolific independent promoters and impresarios in New York City. City Winery has now expanded to Nashville, Atlanta, Boston, Chicago, Philadelphia, upstate New York, and D.C., has the growth of your previous projects, such as The Knitting Factory, impacted how you want to grow and evolve? Yeah,
1: I mean, you know, the the tagline of the book, Scaling Intimacy, you know, I, I've used that. To me, s- scaling a business is both the scariest and the hardest part of what we're trying to do. We want to gain the efficiencies of being a bigger chain in the sense of, buying flooring material, you know, at a discount, or offering an artist 15-city tour and maybe, you know, locking it up for a territory so we know we're going to do well. So there are, there are advantages to scale. The disadvantages is you end up giving to a GM of a location, a manual, and say, here's the McCutter, you know, version of how to run City Winery, and we don't want that. And so scaling Vibe is really really hard you know there's some good models out there and and some things that have worked you know starbucks has done some things really right and and i think danny meyer has done a pretty good job with uh shake shack but it's hard to to sort of take this vibe and make sure it feels independent and local and truly authentic and and so that's got to be our biggest challenge
0: Last question. As you are first and foremost an entrepreneur, I have to ask, what's next?
1: I don't have any other plans, right? I'm all in on this thing. I, We do have a small footprint city winery concept. So the city winery mothership is a 30,000 square foot space. It's a lot of property. There are only so many cities in the world and North America that can support this, if you will, the mothership, Toronto and Los Angeles, maybe Detroit, London, Miami. And we're going to grow into those over the next five, six, seven years. But there are a hundred secondary and tertiary markets like Pittsburgh and Milwaukee and Columbus and Charlotte and St. Louis. I mean, there's so many. So we are looking at a smaller footprint concept called the tasting room by City Winery, and we're looking to, you know, roll those out. So it's still same concept, same business, but I think I can get to 80 or 100 of those locations. A little crazy, but I'm pretty confident we can do that. So the next 10 years, I've I've got a lot of work in front of me.
0: It sounds remarkable and phenomenally exciting. Michael Dorff, thank you so much for joining me today on Design Matters. My pleasure. Michael Dorff's new book is part memoir, part business book, part great storytelling, and it's titled Indulge Your Senses: Scaling Intimacy in a Digital World. You can find out more about Michael Dorff at michaeldorff.com. This is the 15th year I've been doing Design Matters and I'd like to thank you for listening. I'd also like to thank AC Hotels by Marriott for their generous support of this podcast. And remember, We can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
2: If you love this podcast, please consider contributing to our brand new Patreon community. Members get early access to the podcast, transcripts of every interview, invitations to live shows, Q&A sessions with guests, and a brand new annual magazine. You can learn more about this at patreon.com. If you subscribe to this podcast through Apple Podcasts, please write a review or link to the podcast on social media. Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is recorded at the School of Visual Arts, Master's in Branding program in New York City, the first and longest-running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Weiland.